aging is a fact of life. Old is a mindset. And peak performance aging demands a very different mindset. So what the research shows is that if we have a positive mindset towards aging, which is nothing fancy, it's just literally like, I am excited about the second half of my life. I think it's filled with thrilling possibility. I think my best days are ahead of me. This is Mastering Menopause. By using fitness, nutrition, lifestyle, and mindset, you can master your hormones and get your body back. I'm Kathy Cotain with Catalyst Fitness and Nutrition. Let's get into it. Welcome back to Mastering Menopause. I would like to welcome best-selling author Stephen Kotler. Stephen is a New York Times best-selling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He is also one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He is the author of 11 bestsellers, including The Art of Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold in Abundance, and also his work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, and he has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Wired, Wall Street Journal, Time, and the Harvard Business Review. He has explored how new technologies, neuroscience, and psychology can expand our capabilities both physically and mentally. And in this episode, in this episode, we're going to dive into his new book called NAR Country, which comes out February 28th. That's tomorrow. And why Stephen believes performance optimization is so important and get an inside look at his research. Over the past decade, there have been some breakthroughs in a dozen different fields that have started to paint a whole new picture on aging. And the research shows that we can sustain peak performance much later in life than anyone thought possible. And so in Stephen's book, NAR Country, he finds he's going to share these findings and he's going to test them on his own body. So thank you so much for being here today, Stephen. It is truly my honor. Hi, Kathy. It's good to be with you. So I, there was a few chapters that that I kind of that I went through, and I really liked the the excitement in the new technologies that are coming through as far as aging goes, and aging gracefully, and kind of kind of you know opening the doors on what we think aging is, and just kind of having that mindset that this isn't over, right? This is a new chapter as you're going into your fifties and beyond. And so can you expand on that a little bit, particularly like how that the, the mindset can add an extra seven and a half years to our lives? For sure. So let me back up one step and, and just give a little context because it might be a useful place to start. Most of us sort of grew up with the traditional ideas of aging. And traditional ideas of aging are what, what I've, I've sort of dubbed the long, slow rot theory, right? It's it, it's what we're all familiar with. It's that our mental and our physical skills decline over time, and there's nothing we can do to stop that slide. And for a variety of reasons that we can get to, that was sort of the story. That story was very, very true until like 1995, 1996, which is when holes started appearing in that story. Most of us haven't heard the news story it one of the reasons is because the data showed up in like 11 different fields and is now slowly coming together but anyways the news story is that all the skills we used to think decline over time there's nothing we can do stop the slide we know they decline over time that's still sort of true sort of we can go back to what i mean by that sort of 
But what yeah. we now know is they're all use it or lose it skills. So if you never stop training these skills, we get to hang on to them, even advance them far later in life than maybe thought possible. The place to start, I think, is the place you went right to, which is mindset. So this is work. It really dates back to the 70s. Ellen Langer at Harvard was poking at these questions that far back. But finding after finding after finding has showed, one, there's a aging is not just a physical process, right? It's a mental process as much as a physical process. And the, the aging is a fact of life. Old is a mindset. And peak performance aging demands a very different mindset. So what the research shows is that if we have a positive mindset towards aging, which is nothing fancy, it's just literally like, I am excited about the second half of my life. I think it's filled with thrilling possibility. I think my best days are ahead of me. The research is pretty clear. It will, it translates to an additional seven and a half years of healthy longevity. So that's a pretty robust, big finding. It's been, that number has come up in like three or four or five different longitudinal studies, big studies that have gone on for decades and that sort of thing. So stuff, things that I, I'm confident in, a lot of other people are confident in. But so there's a just a deep correlation between our mindset and how how we age. We can st- I'll stop there and let you ask yeah. <laughs> I love that. And you also mentioned that use it or lose it, you know, that's very, very true. And I think we get complacent where we just stop thinking that we can, you know, like can't teach an, an old dog new tricks where we stop, we stop trying to do new things, or maybe we're afraid to do new things. And, you know, in absolutely, if, if you're not going to expand your mental capabilities or your physical capabilities, then you will lose those. So you did some research like on the blue zone communities. Yeah. So I, I have seven or eight different lines of my research sort of came together. One of the things my wife and I for 20 years have run a hospice sanctuary for dogs. We've developed a healing methodology. There's a whole movement in canine health to double canine lifespan. And there's high-tech stuff, there's low-tech stuff. We sort of work in the middle and we had sort of created lifestyle interventions, some nutritional stuff, et cetera. Our, we work, we let we specialize in like worst case scenarios. So if you're like a three-legged, one-eyed chihuahua with an abusive past, cancer, heart disease, flatulence, you're our kind of dog, right? Like, and they all get checked out by vets right before they come to us. And usually the vets will say, look, don't get very attached. Three weeks to live, a month at most. You, the work here is a good death. And we heard this, and we've done this work for a long time, 700 dogs, best or a facility directly that we worked with. And on average, we would see three to four more years, not like one month, we get three to four more years, you translate into the human years, that's like 21 to 28 more years. So this mm-hmm. question of, wow, there's a huge lifestyle impact and, and canine health is different from human health, but it raised the question in me, and this is where going back to the early 2000s of, hey, is this possible in humans? The same time I was asking that question, Dan Butner, a reporter with National Geographic, got together with a whole bunch of aging experts and they started asking this question about various communities in the world. What are the longest lived communities on earth? It was blue zone communities. And as it turns out, the same interventions that work in the blue zones are the same interventions we we were doing with our dogs. The blue zones fancy it up a little bit with some nutritional advice that is 
a controversy. There's still arguments about, right? There's, there's, they find that certain people drink a lot of wine in blue zones. They think it's the resveratrol in the wine. There's a huge controversy over that. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not, but there's like five or six lifestyle things that are unbelievably true. And they're true across the boards for dogs, for humans in the blue zones, even in other long lived communities. And that seems to hold up and, you know, just coming right off of our conversation with mindset, one of the things you see in the blue zones is a lot of social connection, a lot of belonging, a lot of passion, purpose, regular access to flow states really matter in these blue zones. Things along those lines, regular exercise. We were talking about the loser, user to lose it skills. Um, they prioritize regular access to de-stressing, ritual de-stressing. So, you know, in, in peak performance aging, you want to talk about an active recovery protocol, not just like passive recovery, but active recovery, which I'm sure you've talked about mindfulness, saunas, you know, salt baths, yoga, walks in nature. We can go on and on and on. Yeah. Um, these are commonalities you see among the longest lived communities on on earth. And it's these these very strong lifestyle changes. One of the ones that, that gets really interesting and dovetails a lot into my work is the social connection. So we know social connection is, is crucial for peak performance aging. It's crucial for health and longevity. In fact, it's the only thing that equates with mindset. So both robust social connections and mindset in studies tend to produce about seven and a half years of health and longevity. What nobody can seem to tell me, by the way, is to these stack, right? Do you get like seven and a half years from the mindset shift in another seven and a half years? That that work still remains to be done. Like how do these things nestle on top of one another? Yeah. But the social connection stuff is 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 very interesting. And the blue zones, in some cases, they'll 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 spend like six hours a day prioritizing, like talking to friends, talking to family, maintaining those connect connections. I I was very interested in how do you do that faster, which is where like my work on flow sort of comes into the picture a little bit because yeah. I didn't have six hours a day to prioritize social connection, but right. I like the same benefits. Yeah, no, I did. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear that <laughs> as well. I think we have, you know, in society now, it's like the the direct opposite of that. It seems like where we're not moving around a lot, right? We've decoupled that activity, living like a very high stress life, not taking time to to de to de stress, and so then we have the on those opposite ends for for a lot of people, and also maybe not having that robust social life that you were talking about, and kind of being in isolation. And so, how is that going to play out into your longevity, into your life, if we don't prioritize these things now? And this is so common that I see for a lot of the women that I work with is just being stressed to the max in sitting in front of the computers and not having a study just came out. If you, if you walk five minutes every two hours, you know how that's going to improve your longevity. I'm not sure if it was actually a study, but, and then people are like, I don't have time for that. Like, are you what? <laughs> so just thinking the opposites of, you know, what is, you know, what are you going to do if you don't prioritize these things? Well, we, I mean, we have those answers. Like, in, in, I mean, that like we have, so social connection, for example, people without robust social connections have better chance of getting a life-threatening illness. They have a worse prognosis when facing that illness. They have greater chance of depression, loneliness, multi MS, cancer, heart, like it, it goes on and on and on. The physical stuff is interesting because it's gotten so What's cool and what like why it's getting really exciting is 
we've sort of gotten very precise in our prescriptions. We've gone from, oh, exercise is good for you to, no, no, we now know exactly what kinds of exercise you want to be engaged in, how much, how long. So the if we talked earlier about the user lose it skills, there's a mental side, there's a physical side. On the physical side, what matters are the five categories of functional fitness, strength, stamina, agility, balance, and flexibility. And we have literally precise guidelines from the World Health Organization. Like the, we, we know if you want regular performance, just successful aging, if you want peak performance aging, we know exactly what the requirements are. It's for peak performance aging, it's 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic activity a week two strength training days minimum and three balance agility flexibility days. So, or you can pick activities that hit multiple categories at once. So this is the thing about peak performance aging. And this is the thing that I want to say to like any of the adults who are, I'm too busy, right? One of the things that I really focused on in our country is there's two things to know. One, right. Once you sort of reach 50, if you're not moving forwards, you're going backwards. There's a tremendous amount of forward you can go to, but you're really you're really going backwards and you're making it harder for yourself, right? Okay. So that 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 is that is sort of where we know, but we also know things like for example, if you want to preserve brain function, right? Turns out that dynamic motion, dynamic motion is literally a dynamic is a catch-all for all five categories of functional fitness. Skiing is a dynamic activity, but so is tennis, for example. Not only do you get much better health and longevity outcomes, in fact, when they compare like tennis, I'm a regular tennis player too. I join a health club and I work out at the health club. A health club will give you about a year and a half's worth of extra longevity. Tennis, because it's both social and dynamic, Nine years of longevity is what it translates out to. And this is work that was done at the Mayo Clinic um, off a huge, it's the, the Copenhagen heart study, one of the most famous heart studies ever done. And they have all kinds of data on their participants. And they wanted to look at what kind of sports translated to how much health and longevity. And, and this is what they learned. The dynamic sports work really well. And, and like one of the best sort of proof of that is you see dynamic sport, action sports are all super dynamic sports. And when you look for the three longest lived communities in America, it's Summit County, Pitkin County, and Yukon in Colorado. That's Vail, Aspen, Beaver Creek, Copper Mountain, right? It's all these hubs of outdoor activities because action sports, well, like we've been told, no, no, this is the thing we should stop doing as we age. And in fact, yeah. they're the very thing we should be doing as we age. But the reason is this, when we, so at the Flow Research Collective, my organization, you know, we train tens of thousands of people each month in peak human performance. And we do this work in 130 countries. So we have globally diverse, wildly accurate senses of what works and what doesn't. And the one commonality among every, everyone you train is wildly different. I will tell you that 50% of the people we train are women, but everybody's wildly different. And, mm -hmm. but they're all busy. Everybody we train is busy. So yeah. we emphasize what we call multi-tool solutions right? You want a single tool that solves multiple challenges at once. And action sports or dynamic activities like tennis, badminton works also that dance, learning to dance would also work all those things. They just tick a lot of these boxes at once. And that's what you're looking for. There's more stuff you're looking for and you can get more, you know, better on top of that. But like, that's how I like to think about it. Cause I just being busy can't be an excuse. 
Because, yeah. So do you mind talking about your experience with what you, what you would yeah, put what yourself through? Yeah. yeah, what I did. Okay. So if you're enjoying this podcast, I'm wondering if I could ask you a small favor and leave me a review on this podcast. This is going to help me get the word out to more women just like you. And I would appreciate that so much. Thank you. I have to, yeah, walk in. So for a bunch of different reasons that we're not going to go into, but let's just say a lot of reasons. I took a bunch of ideas out so that were true in the lab and in out of a bunch of whiz bang fields, flow science, my own core field, adult mm-hmm. development, embodied cognition, geriatric psychiatry, neural dynamics, a bunch of other stuff like that. And said, you know, if these things are true, older adults should be able to onboard incredibly challenging, difficult physical skills, even very late in life. And as a way to test it, I decided to see if I could teach myself how to park ski. Now, park skiing is a discipline in skiing that involves doing tricks off jumps and on wall rides and rails. And, you know, it's very acrobatic. It's very, very dangerous. And for about 11 or 12 biological reasons, once you're over 30, 35, it's supposed to be very, very difficult to learn. You get to 40 or 50. And like in your 40s, you're already like at the light of downright impossible. And by the time you get to 50, you're just nuts, right, for even trying. And to see for reasons that I'm not going to go into, I figured if it took five years, cool whatever. That's fine. I started when I was 53. And to test my progress, I made a list of tricks that would essentially cover zero. I have zero skills, which is where I started and intermediate. There was a reason we could talk about why later I wanted to get to intermediate, but essentially once you get to intermediate, you can take control of your learning. You start the dumb, the dumb stuff goes away, the random falls, that stuff. And you may still get injured, but it's it's up to you in a sense and how you progress. There's more control. It's a little safe, it's a lot safer. So zero to intermediate, we figured five years, cool. I got there in three and a half months, which was insane. Now, my skiing partner, who is a couple decades younger than me, but was and was a better skier than I was, and a former sponsored athlete park skier had retired, had a family and a career, and then sort of come back to it. He applied the same learning protocol and got farther than he's ever gone in decades of of doing this. So that we came back the next year, because while we had really tantalizing, sexy data, it's a very small pilot study, right? It's just, it's two guys. And let's, so I always want to know, you know, and I never believe if stuff works for me, don't believe it's going to work for everybody. I'm a real fan of like, let's make sure, let's test these things. Let's run studies. So we came back the following year around a study, 17 older adults, ages 29 to 60. And we used the same protocol and got them from all of the, most of them started out at intermediate level. We got them from intermediate to like in four days on the hill, able to park, ski, and snowboard, which we thought was really, really cool. And then we stripped out the action sports because not everybody wants action sports in their like peak performance aging protocol. And we replaced the action sports with hiking with a weight vest, which for a bunch of different reasons, it actually hits all five. If you stretch first and afterwards, it'll hit 
It's not for everybody, but it hits all five categories of functional fitness in a really good way. It's how I trained for my season of park skiing. It also, bone density is, is an issue for everybody, definitely an issue for women. And there's weight vest hiking is good. It will not, if you want to really maximize bone density, there's a company called OsteoStrong. They're your friend. They get amazing results. They're phenomenal. And, and and they're one place you really want to start or if you're coming back to fitness and it's been a while and, and bone density is something you worry about. My wife has very brittle bones to begin with. She's very small and she's brittle bones to begin with and bone density is big, a big issue with her. Same thing with me. OsteoStrong is your friend here, but weight vest hiking, once you get a little stronger is where I would go. And then the goal of the class was wasn't so much to like, we wanted to teach people for two things. One, can we explode their traditional mindset around aging, right? Can we totally replace it with a new mindset? And two, I want people to be able to design what I call a NAR style quest. NAR is short for gnarly. It's action sport slang for high and perceived danger, high and actual danger, which I call the book NAR country because that's a pretty good description of our later years. High and perceived danger, high and actual danger, kind of a good description of the gritty mindset we need to thrive under those conditions. And what we found is that how do you explode a mindset? You can, mindfulness helps noticing what your mindset is and, and how it impacts your thinking night, but these are, these are cognitive shortcuts. So our mindset will help us make up our mind very quickly about large sorts of things. So you you want to sort of notice it and watch your language around it. And those are great places to start. Very potent, very powerful. I don't want to dismiss them, but we found that creating a, what we call a NAR style quest. This is just like a personal impossible challenge. I pick park skiing, but I have all kinds of unfinished business in athletics in my life. Just per, I've got personal stuff that sits under the heading of athletics. I've got personal stuff under the heading of skiing. So I wanted that added motivation. This was sort of like my personal impossible quest. And there was a lot of fire behind it. What's important is to find a NAR style quest. So we then ran this experiment with like 330 people. People did everything. We had a woman in Japan who went from, I'm, you know, I've been a quiet, introverted artist my whole life. I'm now going for my first solo show. We've, we, a couple, a, a woman started trying to run her first triathlon. A guy in his sixties taught himself how to kite surf. Like it's all over the place, what people are doing. And it's yeah. gotta be sort of an individual challenge, but you want to look for something that, if you pull it off, there's no way your traditional ideas about what's possible in the second half of your life can stand up. That was the most amazing thing about learning how to park ski besides the amount of fun that I had was like, I didn't set out to do anything with my mindset towards aging. I knew it was going to be an issue and I knew it was a problem. And I knew that there were a lot of categories where I had this, I knew what all the new research was, but I also know that fear likes to disguise itself as the voice in your head saying you're too old for this shit. And there's a comfort trap. There's there's more stuff in it. You know, if you've had children, it makes it even worse because the neurochemicals underneath protecting your children fight against. That's where that same thing where the you know you're too young for the old for the shit mindset comes from. So these are all issues you got to fight against. And I so I wanted a quest that would just blow up my mindset. And once I started learning how to do like three sixties off jumps, yeah, my. <laughs> And it was, but it wasn't just me. We saw this with like all the older adults. In fact, and you don't have to take my word for it. If you go to narcountry.com, there's a tab that says view the peak performance aging experiment video. 
And we had a National Geographic camera person follow us around for the course of the experiment. We were videotaping it so we could rate progress. And when I could tell you because of that, you know, our athletes made a 26.5% amount of progress in all our judging categories, which were style and fluidity and trick selection and things like that. Um, we also saw, by the way, a 35% increase in confidence in older adults and doing challenging physical skills. That's huge for four days on the hill. That was, that was, that, so those were really big results, but like you can watch the video and it's just, it's really funny. But one of the things that I like there, so there's, you can see this at the end of the video. There's a guy, he introduces himself. He says, I'm Rick Wicks. I'm 66 years old. And I definitely caught some air in the NAR country program. And he's talking about catching air off jumps. And that's cute and everybody can see it. But what you, what nobody can see is we had a foundational meeting where like we ran through the participants, what we were going to do, what was expected of them in the experiment. He was there. There's were like, you know, a bunch of our other 60 year olds. And it, he, he literally like on the Zoom call, he was like, I am 66 years old. I have been skiing for 50 years. I have never been jumping. I don't get into the air and I'm not going to start now. We were like, that's totally fine. You don't have to, you don't have to do that for this program. We're, we're fine. So when I see that at the end, that sort of cracks me up because I know where he started. And that just sort of an example of like how you can explode your mindset properly. Yeah, definitely opening up those possibilities. So I, so we tend to have that like that single-minded vision, right? And you talked also about opening up that peripheral vision and seeing like not just being focused on like the thing that's in front of you, but the things that are on the side of you. So I think you were mentioning like if, if you're skiing, then looking for the dangers, right? Oh, this <laughs> is, yeah, there's a, so there's in this kind of adventure, in general in peak performance, right? Not surprising, you have to, emotional regulation really matters, right? Really matters in peak performance. In challenging situations, so fear, and it's really the hormones and the neurochemistry underneath fear. So cortisol and norepinephrine have huge impacts on our brain and our body. Too much, a little bit of norepinephrine, right? A little bit of that twitchy feeling, you feel it as excitement or curiosity is great. Primes us to learn too much and it wreaks havoc. Too much fear makes us logical and linear and safe automatically. It blocks creativity in the brain. It blocks learning. It blocks fast twitch muscle response and a number of other like physical categories that, that you would need and is really, really detrimental. So managing your emotions really matters. Peak performance. There are a number of ways, you know, long-term mindfulness, regular exercise, a daily gratitude practice. These are the three most potent tools available in the moment. There are a couple of ways to manage your nervous system. One of the fastest is, is, you know, like if you're having an argument with your partner and you call a timeout and you're, you do three breaths, right? When your exhale is twice as long as your inhale, you really, and the truth is you really want your exhale over seven seconds. And it's literally your brain goes, oh, look, that's a seven second long exhale. You must be calm that that calm. So let's not waste all that extra energy burnt building norepinephrine and these other neurochemicals around fear. So you literally trick your brain into thinking, oh, I'm calm and it calms you down because it wants to save energy. Another way to do this, and this isn't my original research, credit where credit is due, it's Dr. Andrew Uberman at Stanford who did this work. It was based on a conversation we were having. So his work, and a lot of other people back this up, if you want to calm your nervous system very quickly, 
Look out the corners of your eyes, peripheral vision. Brain does the same thing. It goes, oh, look, you're checking out the scenery. We don't do that when there's a tiger in front of us and we have to focus on the threat. So all must be chill and it calms you down. I used it skiing because I had this weird experience. My ski partner, who's better than I am, is slightly faster. And I'm always trying to figure out He's a little heavier than I am. So he's got a natural advantage. But I'm always trying to figure out what are you doing? Where's your speed coming from? Because it doesn't like we should be neck and neck and like, what are you doing? Right. And, and so I'm always asking him. And one of the things people don't, one of the things about human performance, we go where we look. It's true conceptually, mentally, and it's true physically. So for example, if you're trying to learn a really complicated physical skill, like how do you surf a tube? If you've ever seen a surfer ride a tube, those things form and crash in milliseconds, right? They're very fast. You cannot ask your muscles to surf a tube. You They, they can't move fast enough. You have to look through the tube. Where you put your vision is where you'll go. So we are literally, as human beings, biologically designed to go where we look. And it works. Goal setting works this way, but it also works this way with physical activity. So Ryan mentions one day, he's like, yeah, I've been trying to keep my vision farther down the hill. That's one of the secrets to my speed is I'm looking farther down the hill and I'm seeing more of the hill. And I heard that and I thought, God, that sounds a lot like peripheral vision. What Andrew Yeberman has been talking to me about in his research. And I was like, so let me try, let me test this. And I went into a very sort of tight, icy section of the mountain and skied it like this really narrow section where all your vision wants to do is like focus on the dangerous stuff right in front of you. (laughs) Right. And I forced my, and I forced myself, it was this crazy experiment. I was like, if I crash, it didn't work. Right. Cause I knew if I crash, if I, if I, if too much fear is going to block flash, has twitch muscle response, I'm going to wipe out. So I kept my vision and it actually calmed me down. It was amazing in the moment. And I did end up seeing more of the hill. And I now sort of use this regularly. And I've sort of made it a part of part of my training. When I hike, I try to keep my chin up a little higher so I can see more of the hill. And we also, side note, but it's tangential to something you said earlier that it's worth bringing up. You said most of my listeners are just stressed out and they go from stress response to stress response to stress response really an issue as we age, right? Because there are nine known causes of aging. All of them, what all of them have in common is inflammation. Where does inflammation come from? Majority, most of the time, stress. So anything we can do to lower stress is actually an anti-aging drug and really, really, really important. So one of the reasons social bonding is so important is it lowers stress a lot and, and really calms us down. So being outdoors, being in nature, right? Where we have these wide vistas calms us down. 20 minutes in nature produces a serotonin boost and actually like flushes stress hormones out of our system. I'm Listen sure up, ladies. This on this podcast. <laughs> it's, it's a topic I go over quite a bit. Yes. <laughs> Can I tell you something cool I learned about yeah. it? This is, so this is Time in nature, we, we like I've known that for years. We've been talking about it for years. Yeah. Random weirdness. So one of the new things on why does nature do this is so the brain 
is always trying, what the brain is doing on a moment by moment basis is trying to predict what's going to happen next. What it really wants to know is how much energy do I need to meet the challenge of the next moment is really sort of the question it's trying to do. And what it really wants to do is minimize surprise. So there's always your, your actions always matches the energy requirement of the situation. Exactly. So in outdoor landscapes, we have fractal patterns, right? So you get repeat. If you're looking at a desert, it's the same image repeated over and over and over again. There's individual variation, but you, right? Same thing when you look at the ocean, all the waves are different, but it looks the same. So what happens is the brain can always predict what's about to happen in these natural environments because it it's these repeated fractal patterns and that's what calms us down. So that's cool. Here's where it gets even funnier. Jackson Pollock's bladder paintings, they're in nature, there's a particular ratio of fractals that we find most calming. The Jackson Pollock paintings mimic the fractal patterns in nature. And the one where he hits this exact ratio are the ones that sell for the most money. How funny is that? That's that's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> so random, but I love it as a detail. I do love that as a detail. Excellent. Yeah, it's amazing. Like those in obviously you're you're in the thick of it, you know, the research and the developments that have that have come come and shown us like it's not over when you turn 50, you know. So let me uh, suggest to that, because this is something most people don't know, and it's really worth talking about. So not only is it not over when we turn 50, there are precise and profound and beneficial changes in how the brain processes information in our 50s. So some of it is genetic genes just turn on by experience and they the benefits show up in our 50s. Some of it is the two hemispheres of the brain start talking together, talking well, working together like never before. And some of it is the brain starts to utilize and recruit underutilized areas. So the combination unlocks three new thinking styles that are, aren't really possible beforehand. It's what psychologists have dubbed developmental intelligence, meaning we have to develop a bunch before we get it. But you yeah. get rel- the ability, like you learn that relativistic thinking isn't possible, isn't really a good idea. Everything's gray. There's no black and white. Yeah. You start to be multi-perspectival. You can see things right now. And big picture thinking comes online. As a result of these thinking styles, whole new levels of intelligence, problem solving, abstract reasoning. You get new levels of creativity, including divergent thinking, which is one of the most crucial kinds of creativity and the hardest to train. And then there are whole new levels of empathy that open up in our 50s and wisdom. And wisdom is a, you know, a definable neurobiological trait. It's really, really crucial. So it's also crucial to our thriving in the second half of our lives. And all this stuff really comes online in our 50s. So one of the reasons I believed I could learn all this stuff is this. So there was all this new stuff that says, hey, this starts to happen in in our 50s. In fact, just to emphasize this point, so I recently, the story that's not in our country that I wish was, is the story of Rebecca Rush. So Rebecca Rush is one of the greatest female athletes of all time. They call her the queen of pain. She's the one of the greatest endurance athletes of all time, seven-time world mountain biking champion. But she's like won titles and things you didn't even know were sports, like orienteering and adventure racing and things like that. But she recently, and I mean like last year, won the human-powered Iditarod in Alaska. So it's the Iditarod race, the dog sled race, and they run a human-powered version where you ride winter bicycles and tow all your gear 
solo across Alaska, no dogs. And she won at, I want to say she was 54 when she won. And the press tried to make her age the story. Rebecca Rush wins, I did it her odd, despite being 54. And Rebecca, time and time again, she said this to me. She said this in interviews that we've done together. Look, I won that race because I was 54. 45-year-old me would have gotten her ass kicked. I am so much wiser. I am so much. It's like the stuff that comes on these levels of intelligence, creativity, empathy, and wisdom. We hear cognitive stuff. We don't understand immediately that that cognitive stuff relates to physical performance as well, but she very clearly does. And I will tell you, you know, interestingly, the other day this happened, I was skiing and I, with my ski partner, who's 38, I'm 55. And somebody who was skiing with his journalist was with us. And she made a comment about, don't you, something about our 18 year old selves. And Ryan, my ski partner looked at her and went, lady, I would kick my 18 year old self ass. And I was like, I couldn't do any of this when I was that young. This is because I'm 55. This is not in spite of being 55. That's really what the research shows us, right? Like this level of physical performance, this level of mental performance. And it's a huge business opportunity. When you talk about important business skills in the 21st century, creativity, intelligence, innovation, empathy, wisdom, downstream from empathy and wisdom are like psychological safety, collaboration, cooperate. I mean, everything we need to thrive in the 21st century. So I think this is a cool business message as well, because it means that like we want to be hiring workers who are over 50. They have, if they're properly trained, they're the dream workforce of the 21st century. How do you how do you cultivate that? And I know we're running out of time. So it's <laughs> gonna be a can of worms, but you know so proper train, we know like with peak performance aging in a single sentence is as follows. And then let me define the terms in the sentence, but most of them are gonna be familiar. If you want to rock till we drop, you wanna regularly engage in challenging social and creative activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. That is the formula for peak performance aging in a single sentence. Challenging creative and social activities. We talked about the social element. We talked a little bit about the challenging element. This has a lot to do with flow states and how good they are for aging and how challenge tends to drop us into flow. But it's also, you want to train down risk aversion, which will it'll creep up on you over time. It gets worse and worse and worse. Too much risk aversion creates too much fear, which blocks off for all the reasons we covered, right? It's going to block peak performance aging and creative activities. So I just talked about these superpowers of aging. If we really want them, the key to maximizing them and getting them is actually creative activities. That's how we train the brain in these developmental thinking. So creativity unlocks developmental thinking for us. Dynamic, deliberate play. Dynamic is the five categories of functional fitness we talked about. Deliberate play is the opposite. Deliberate practice is like grinded out. It's repetition with incremental advancement. I'm going to do the same thing over and over and over again, and I'm going to get a little better each time. And it's and the reps, yeah. right. And that's awesome for certain types of learning. But as a general rule, we learn better with deliberate prep play, which is repetition with improvisation. You do what you did last time, but you freestyle a little bit creatively on top of it, right? And that for a bunch of different reasons, 
We learn faster. It's more fun. We get to learn without like the self-consciousness, the embarrassment, the shame, the voice in our head, everything else. And the novel outdoor environments, we talked about the benefits of being outdoors for stress. Novelty works as a flow trigger, but the reason you want to do this also to protect the brain. Our brain, if we want to preserve our brain function, you want to birth new neurons and you want to build new neural networks out of those. So this is a formula, this entire thing I've been laying out, it's a formula for doing exactly that. But a lot of the new neurons in the adult brain come out of a spot known as the hippocampus, which is specifically designed for long-term memory and location. It's the part of the brain that remembers where we were when important stuff happens. And because we evolved as hunter-gatherers, we have to remember where we were when we found the right fruit tree or where we were when we found got attacked by the tiger, right? That stuff is really important. So the brain is biologically designed to remember where we are when we have like emotional experiences in the outdoors, basically. And so peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. Peak performance aging is the same thing applied to the challenges and opportunities of aging. This is an exact example. Like if we're having these experiences, right, is the difference between if you exercise and you go to the gym and walk on a treadmill, that's good for your heart. It's not the best for longevity and health, right? It's good. It's better than nothing, but you're much better off walking outside. You're even better taking it off trail so you can be off balance, right? Because if it's dynamic, and you need to coordinate strength and stamina and balance and all that stuff that amplifies the neurogenesis you're already getting from the novel outdoor environments. And those are the, that's like a multi-tool solution. So this is right. It's a lot to do. Here's one way of sort of tackling all of it, which is why skiing, my park skiing quest was so good because it was a challenging, creative and social activity demands yeah. dynamic, deliberate play. And it takes place in novel outdoor environments. Now there's a million things that you could do. You don't, don't do what I did. You know, figure out what's right for you, but that's the formula. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And just kind of pushing yourself, getting outside of your comfort zone and, and trying new things and being open to those possibilities. So I, I love that. And there's actual science behind it rather than just saying, hey, get out of nature, right? There's a reason why this works. So is there anything else that you, you want to add on? How do we get your book? I'm sure it's available in all. It's available in our country.com. I just, I, I want to circle back and just, I just wanted to tell you, you might've covered this, but I mentioned Ellen Langer's name earlier and we started with my Mindset, so I thought I'd bring it fully close. I just okay, wanted to yeah. out, like she did all this crazy research into like how mindset impacts us physically and mentally. And my favorite, it's one of my favorite studies I've ever read in psychology. It's her famous chambermaid study. Have you heard about this? Anger looks at chambermaids and she's like, you know, chambermaids get all this physical activity. Like it's oh, yeah. hard, though, right? Yeah, so, know. you know, are they in better shape than other people? No, it turns out they're not. And then they go, so they take 84 maids and they tell half of them about the exercise they're getting. And then a month later, they come back and write measure. All they did is switch their mindset, but everything, they lost weight, they're hip to waist here. They didn't do it, no extra work. They just realized the work they were already doing counted as exercise. And that was enough to get the benefits of it, which was crazy. So like when you talk about the relationship between mind and body, it's so much tighter than, you know, we've sort of been led to believe. 
Yeah. And expanding, you know, coming out of that, like all or nothing, which is very, we have to take a look at those things and put in, in parameters that black and white thinking, you know, where this is right, this is wrong. And then when we expand that as we get older, right, having that wisdom and bringing in the empathy to realize there is something I'm not right. There is there's always another <laughs> there's another side to this and being open to all the possibilities because it's never just one one possibility. So Thank you very, very much. I appreciate you coming on. And I am going to link everything that we just talked about and get those into the show notes. And I can't thank you enough for being on here. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kathy. Fun hanging out. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.